a wonderful time of singing together, worshiping our Lord. I'm thankful for Brandon and Roberta and Justin and their ministry to us in that way, and the others who have done so as well. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. I'm thankful that you have joined us this morning. As the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. No matter what the day brings, no matter what happens, we can rejoice in the day, can we not? I hope your day has been full of joy, even if your current circumstances are difficult. The Lord doesn't promise us an easy go, does He? But He does promise us eternal life. Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6-9, he says the proof of your faith is more precious than gold which is perishable. He tells us when our true faith is tested by fire, it results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though, he says, and though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you rejoice with joy. The song, Rejoice. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And he says this, the outcome of your faith, the outcome of your faith results in perseverance and ultimately results in the salvation of your souls. Wonderful truth. Beloved, being a Christian who has no joy is a non sequitur. It's, it, has, it doesn't follow log- logically as we walk the narrow path leading to eternal life, even in time of difficulty and despair, we have the joy of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. If you find yourself lacking joy this morning or at any time, I pray that you will seek the Lord. I pray that He will shower you and, and fill you with bountiful joy. I love the word spoken by Ezra to God's people as they grieved in Nehemiah 8.10. He says to them, Go and eat the fat and drink of the sweet and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Then he says this, Do not be grieved. Do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of Yahweh is your strength. Well, this morning we're returning to our study in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1. As we saw last week, Joseph and Mary found themselves in a gravely difficult position. You see, they, they faced a life of ridicule and heartbreak, yet Mary had great joy as she pondered her son's future life and ministry. And I am absolutely certain that Joseph as well had great joy when he heard that the the baby in Mary's womb would save his people from their sins. So let's with that let's pray and get started in Matthew chapter 1 as we finish up this chapter this morning. Let me read verses 18 through 25. Join with me. Matthew 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, 
Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Last week in my introduction, I reminded you of the oft-used phrase, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. it. Then I reminded you, or I told the story of the Great Depression and its links to even the Great Recession, In our day, many people say that we cannot have a repeat of the Great Depression or uh, the Great Recession because in their words, things are different today. Never mind that both came from similar conditions that we see today. Now, many times, preachers will beat themselves up on Sunday afternoon and even Monday because of perceived weaknesses in in a sermon. Well, I'm no different. I'm no different. When I chose to make this a two-part sermon, I understood that you may have wondered the reason why I use these analogies for Matthew's message in Matthew 1, 18-25. Well, I hope to show you from this text that Matthew actually points back to Israel's history to show God's continued faithfulness. His faithfulness to protect His remnant, to bring glory to Himself, and to save His people from their sins. In this case, those who can't remember God's faithfulness and to trust in it, are, they are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past that would ultimately lead to their destruction. Now, let's quickly review the first two points from last week's sermon. I should remind you that in Matthew 1, 1-17, we set the foundation for our study in Matthew. Now, I'm not going to go back through that. We're going to... It's kind of like a boat going through the water. You get to the end of the wave, and we're at the end of the wave, and so we're not going to go back there. But if you would like to know more, and if you haven't heard those first sermons, I invite you to go back. But we, those first two sermons set the foundation, and they were then the keys to, I would say, the keys to unlock the meaning of Matthew's gospel. Therefore, after giving the human origin of King Jesus in the verse 17 verses, which gives Jesus the right to the Davidic throne, Matthew gives the heavenly origin of Jesus, our Savior. Now let's quickly review the first of what we have as four imperatives you must believe about our Savior's heavenly origin. The first, and we saw this last week, you must believe that the virgin birth was formulated. Now, here's what, here's what I would say, and this is why I said formulated. In, in verse 18, Matthew 1.18, Matthew gives a simple formula for announcing the birth of Jesus. He says in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus was as follows. The, this phrase alerts us that Matthew plans to give a further explanation of Jesus' birth. You see, Jesus is unlike the other people Matthew gives in his genealogies. Now, 
Jesus, we've seen, is the king. That There were, though, other kings like David and Solomon and Josiah, they, they, they appear in the genealogy, but there is no king like King Jesus, and that's really Matthew's point in verses 1.18-25. If he just gave us 17 through the first 17 verses, we wouldn't necessarily know that there was something different about this particular king. And he says, when his mother had been betrothed to Joseph they, before they came together. Last week we learned what it meant for Joseph and Mary to be betrothed. This, this was a formal engagement which was legally binding. In other words, the betrothal, you could call it the first stage of marriage. Now this is, as you know, unlike engagements in our culture, which are basically a public declaration of the intention to get married. Now let me clarify something. I'm not saying that a couple in our culture should be flippant with their promises to one another. Uh, as Christians, we should seriously consider the act of getting engaged. It's not something that you should do without great much thought and, and uh, consideration. Uh, but, it, but in our culture, the engagement is not legally binding. And, and it can be broken with very little difficulty outside of the emotional and social attachments that we form in, during that time. But that wasn't the case in Joseph and Mary's culture. Uh, that they, they, their betrothal could only be dissolved by legal means. But during this period, the husband and wife had not come together to consummate the marriage, if you will. Matthew clearly states that Joseph and Mary had not come together when she was found to be with child. In other words, Joseph could not have been the natural father of the child in Mary's womb. As such, Matthew gives a simple formula to understand the true origin of Jesus. Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, I said earlier that, that preachers can even grieve over sermons. Sometimes you make mistakes in sermons, and I made a mistake last week. Last week I quoted three Greek words that Matthew uses to prove Jesus' heavenly origin. And I need to admit something. Dr. Felix, my Greek professor, would be profoundly angry at me because I mispronounced one of the Greek words. I can't pronounce, as you know, many times I can't pronounce English words, so it shouldn't surprise anyone that I missed a Greek one. There you go. That, thankfully, I, I will say this, my, my weak pronunciation never changes the, the truth of God's Word. Amen? Yet I need to correct myself. Ma Matthew says that she was with child, ek panumatos hagiu. You have a, it's a rough breathing mark, you add the H sound, hagiu would be the correct, correct uh, pronunciation. But the truth still stands, by the Holy Spirit. In a few simple words, Matthew gives us all that we need to know about Mary's pregnancy and about the child in her womb. The babe in Mary's womb is God incarnate, is fully human, yet fully God, is God in the flesh. This, my friends, is Matthew's simple formula. It's not ambiguous. He says exactly what he means. The question is at hand truly becomes one of belief or unbelief. I quoted Sam Storms last week, and I think it should be repeated. We either believe the virgin birth or not, based upon our belief in the reality of the supernatural and the integrity of Scripture, end quote. 
Beloved, Scripture says it. Do you believe it? Scripture says it. Do you believe it? Do you believe this, the truthfulness of God's Word? The whole counsel of God, as Paul calls it. Do you believe in the supernatural? This morning we just looked at it, we just finished our study in Genesis 1 and 2. Some have asked me, and I said this this morning, why I'm so adamant about that, that account. Friends, if you can't believe that God supernaturally created the world in six days, how in the world can you believe that a child in Mary's womb was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit? And, oh, by the way, how can you believe in the resurrection from the dead? You can't. I mean, you, you can't and have integrity, right? Let's look at the second, the second of four imperatives you must believe about our Savior's heavenly origin. <clears throat> you must believe that the virgin birth was forecast and foretold. Look at your text in verse 19. It says, Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, this news put Joseph in this news that she was pregnant, put Joseph in a bind, did it not? <clears throat> he loved Mary, but he was a righteous man. Now, I can, one can only imagine how conflicted he must have been when he heard this news. He wanted to do what was right, even if it hurt him. You see, Joseph truly exemplified, and I, I see a connection to Psalm 15, he exemplified the one who dwells in Yet with Yahweh. <clears throat> he was a man who walked with integrity. He worked righteousness, and he spoke truth in his heart. He honored those who feared Yahweh, and he swore to his own hurt and would never change. That describes Joseph. That describes Joseph. And that's, by the way, Psalm 15, if you want to write that down. You see, it truly hurt Joseph to send Mary away, but that's exactly what he knew he had to do. He knew Mary, and I believe that he knew Mary to be a righteous woman. Yet, he knew, he was absolutely certain, that the baby in her womb was not his baby. <coughs> he could have... Excuse me, let, me, let me take a drink. He could have publicly shamed her. He could have even had her stoned to death, according to the law but he chose to send her away secretly. But then something happened that is quite astounding. In verse 20, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now the text lets us know that Joseph had thought these things through. And, and as a righteous man, he had finalized his plans. He would send her away secretly. But it says, but at that time, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, telling him not to be afraid to come and finalize the marriage with Mary because the child is of the Holy Spirit. That's, uh, that, and, and, and in verse 21, the angel tells Joseph to name her son Jesus. Now, the name Jesus, or Joshua, or Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. By calling Jesus by that name, the angel is foretelling that Jesus himself will be salvation to his people. Uh, he's saying he will, Jesus will save his people from their sins. Beloved, the forecast for Joseph and Mary and for their child would be difficult. Uh, they would be mocked and, and we know they would even be chased out of town. 
Joseph or Jesus himself would be a, a man would know where to lay his head. Matthew eight twenty. He says he says himself, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He would be, according to Isaiah fifty three, he would be a, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It's Isaiah fifty three three that prophesies of his life. Ultimately, the child in Mary's womb would go to the cross to take upon himself the sins of the world. He would suffer and die to save his people uh, from their sins. Yet, the angel told Joseph not to be afraid of all that would happen in the future. You see, the angel foretold foretold that Joseph and Mary and Jesus would be cared for by God. And that Jesus would be salvation to those who believe in him. Church, you must believe that the child in Mary's womb was by the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's, it's an absolute, you have to believe this. You must also join Joseph and Mary in believing that God will protect you if you are His. You must believe that the child in Mary's womb would save His people from their sins. You must believe that He will save you from your sins. Now, It's also imperative. Let's look at the third imperative. It's also imperative that you believe the virgin birth was fulfilled. Look at your text in verse 22, Matthew 1.22. Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying... Now in, in this verse, Matthew's telling his readers that the events described in the previous verses occurred to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah. Now, this statement is incredible because it shows how Matthew viewed uh, the Old Testament. He viewed it as being the very Word of God. In other words, when the prophets spoke, they were not merely speaking their words, they were speaking the Word of God. So according to Matthew, this is inspired prophecy. In the words of John MacArthur, he says that phrase gives a simple, straightforward definition of Biblical inspiration as the word of the Lord coming through human instruments. God does the saying, the human instrument is only a means to bring the divine word to men, end quote. Now in the following verse, in Matthew one twenty three, Matthew gives the prophecy. Now here he quotes the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14. Now he says, Behold... The virgin shall be with child and shall, be, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So according to Matthew, Isaiah prophesied that a virgin will conceive a child. Now, his quotation causes a couple of questions we need to address. The first question is, what does the term virgin mean? The second question is, what does it mean that Jesus' birth fulfilled the word of the Lord through Isaiah? Now, to answer those questions, I want to give you some background. So, if you would like, turn to, in your, in your Bibles, to Isaiah 7. Now, let me give you a little bit of background about what is going on here in Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7 records events during the reign of King Ahaz in Judah. 
Ahaz was a grandson of Uzziah. Now, Uzziah was one of the good kings of Judah, according to 2, 15, or 2 Kings 15, 1-3. He did right in the sight of Yahweh. Yet Ahaz himself was a wicked king. Sadly, he did great evil by filling Jerusalem with idols. He also reinstated the worship of the god Melech, and he also shockingly, shockingly burned his own son as a sacrifice to that god. Ahaz was a wicked, wicked man. Now, in Isaiah 7, 1 through 2, there were two kings besides uh, Ahaz. There was Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, also called Samaria at that time. So now, this is the time when the division of the kingdoms, there was Judah, and then there was Israel. So Ahaz was king of Judah, and then there was Israel, and Pekah was the king of Israel. Now, they came together, uh, these two kings came together, to wage war against Jerusalem and to remove Ahaz from the throne. They wanted to replace him with a king who would answer to them and do what they wanted him to do. Now clearly, that is a threat to God's people, the people of Judah. But more significantly than that, it threatened the royal line of David. Ahaz, along with the people, greatly feared these evil kings. The text says they shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. In other words, they feared man instead of fearing Yahweh. You'll read that in in Isaiah 7, 1, 1 and 2. Unfortunately, King Ahaz, as representative of the people, reacted in fear as well. He responded to the danger by turning to Tiglath-Pileser, the evil Assyrian king. So there are four kings involved here. There's two evil kings uh, that, are, that are the king of Israel, and there's also now uh, this, king, this Assyrian king who's involved. Now 2 Kings 16.8 tells us that Ahaz plundered the gold and silver from the temple and sent it to the Assyrian king as tribute to him in order for him to protect uh, Ahaz and, and Judah. So and sadly, what's going on here is instead of seeking the Lord for deliverance, Ahaz turned away from Yahweh and seeked salvation in the form of an evil Gentile king. Now, in the midst of Ahaz's sinful, man-fearing actions, the, the prophet Isaiah comes to him. And he tells him that he should have no fear, not to have fear of these two kings. He reported, that's verses, this is verses 3 and 4, he reported that God would deliver the people from them. From them. Now look down at Isaiah 7.7. 7. It says, These kings had devised evil in their hearts toward Ahaz and the people of Judah. Yet, Isaiah promised or prophesied that it would never come to pass. You see, Isaiah trusted the Lord. Look at verse 7. Isaiah says, or thus says the Lord God, that is, through Isaiah, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Now look down at Isaiah's warning to King Ahaz in Isaiah 7, 9. He says, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you, if you do not establish your faith in Yahweh, you surely shall not be established. Beloved, these are chilling words. 
but they're no less true today. Friend, if, you're not, if your faith is not established in Yahweh our Lord, if, you're not, if your faith is not established in Christ, you cannot trust that you will be established. Whipping in the wind. Yet, despite Isaiah's warnings, we see in Isaiah 7, 10-13, that Ahaz stubbornly refuses to listen to him. So Yahweh responds through Isaiah in Isaiah 7, 14. And this is the verse that Matthew quotes back in Matthew chapter 1. He says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a, jo- a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. Now, there's a whole lot of writing that's gone, a lot of ink that's been spilled on what Matthew means here and how this is, f- fulfills this. So I'm going to give you my best shot. So Isaiah goes on to show, how, show Ahaz how Yahweh would deliver Judah from these two evil kings. He tells Ahaz that prior to delivering the people, there would be a sign. There would be a virgin who would bear a son and they would call his name Emmanuel. Now, through the past several centuries, much discussion has occurred about the meaning of the word virgin. Now, the meaning of the word virgin in Isaiah 7.14 and the meaning of the word virgin in Matthew 1.23. Now, I think we can understand Matthew's words in Matthew 1.23 by understanding Isaiah 7, especially Isaiah 7.14. In Isaiah 7.14, the Hebrew word translated virgin refers to a young woman who is old enough to be married, but does not, it, does, it does not, make sure you understand that, it does not necessarily mean virgin in the terms of having been with a man sexually. Also, in the immediate context of Isaiah 7, the, or the, the immediate context of Isaiah 7 helps us recognize that Isaiah is saying that the young girl in his day would be a is not saying that the young girl in his day would be a virgin who had not had sexual contact. Therefore, the reference in Isaiah is not specifically to a virgin birth in its immediate historical setting. And the context of Isaiah 7 makes this very clear. Most commentators point to Isaiah 8, 3, and 4 as the immediate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. You can turn there if you'd like. Isaiah 8, 3, and 4. You see, Isaiah was the husband of a young girl named or called the prophetess. This text in, in chapter 8 says that Isaiah approached her. In other words, he had relations with her. Therefore, clearly, this young lady in Isaiah 8 is not a virgin in that sense. And so she conceived and she gave birth to a son as a sign to King Ahaz and to the people. You see, before this boy could utter a word, Yahweh would deliver His people from the power of these evil kings. So, this baby in Isaiah 8 would become a sign. So, in Isaiah's day, the, again, the term virgin from Isaiah 7.14 refers to a young woman who is probably Isaiah's wife. The virgin in Isaiah's day had relations with her husband and bore a son as a sign. And this child was a sign that Yahweh would deliver His people. Now, back in Matthew 1.23, 
Matthew says that Jesus' birth fulfills this event. He quotes Isaiah 7, Behold the virgin, Isaiah 7, 14, Behold the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now we must answer the question. In what way does this verse, in, that, in what way does Jesus' birth fulfill Isaiah 7, 14? Well, I would argue that the key is to understand that the Lord is speaking through Isaiah. This is the Lord speaking. So Isaiah's prophecy then is clearly fulfilled in his day just as Isaiah said it would be. But the Lord then, though, clearly intends for a greater fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. And this would come in the form of the birth of another child who would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, if you want to look there quickly, cements this, uh, this interpretation. These verses speak of another child who would be born. Just listen to these words in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, or follow along if you're there. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. <clears throat> and there will be no end to the increase of his government and, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. So Matthew then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, proclaims in Matthew one twenty three. he proclaims, that this child spoken of in Isaiah 9 was none other than the Lord Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. He would then fulfill Isaiah 7, 14 and be the one prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Now the second question regarding the meaning is regarding the meaning of the word virgin in Matthew 1, 23. I told you very clearly that Isaiah 14, the Hebrew word, does not necessarily refer to one who is who has not known a man. But in Matthew 1.23, Matthew actually uses a Greek word that is unambiguous. And what, he's, what he writes and how he phrases it is unambiguous. It clearly refers to a virgin who has not known a man. Matthew makes this abundantly clear with his wording and his word choice. The child in Mary's womb, the Lord Jesus, was born of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Beloved, there's no mistaking Matthew's intent. You can argue whether Matthew is right in his assertion. I mean, you can argue that. But there is no argument as to what he is asserting. Matthew is incredibly precise in his word choice and his phrasing. The question is, do you believe Matthew's testimony under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Before we move forward, earlier and last week I said that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Well, by quoting Isaiah 7.14, Matthew is reminding Israel of its past. You know, I told you earlier that this is a very Jewish gospel. Well, this is one place that we see that very clearly. He's reminding them of its past, uh, Israel of its past. 
As we saw, Ahaz did not, he refused to trust Yahweh, the true king. Instead, he cowardly put his trust in an evil human king. Despite this, Yahweh delivered his people. In effect, Matthew is saying the greater deliverance, and think about, uh, you know, one of the keys here was understanding the situation that Israel was in. Matthew is, in effect, saying the greater deliverance has come. This child called Jesus would not only deliver his people physically, so that's what they were focused on. Just like the people in Ahaz's day, they, they shook from fear, right? But they, were, they wanted to be delivered physically. But see, this child Jesus would not only deliver His people physically, but He would save them. He would save them from their sins. He would deliver them eternally. Those who reject Him are doomed to the same fate as wicked King Ahaz. They will not be established. Do you remember the warning and through Isaiah of Yahweh, through Isaiah the prophet in, in Isaiah 7, 9? He says, if you do not establish your faith in Yahweh, you shall not surely not, you surely shall not be established. Friend, I, I pray that you will establish your faith in the Lord Jesus. He has promised, He sent a son. He has promised to deliver His people from their sins. You can apply that to yourself. He has promised to deliver His people from their sins. If you trust in Him, if you trust in His Word, He will deliver you from your sins. And He will care for you. In Hebrews 10, 23 and 24, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. You see, beloved, our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in Christ the Lord. pray that yours is as well. As you sit here today, what is your hope in? Is it in stuff? Money? Power, fame, maybe a job, maybe it's your bank account. What do you look to? See, King Ahaz looked to the world. Matthew says, look to this child, the child Jesus, who is Christ our Lord. Let's look at the last requirement. You must believe that the virgin birth was brought to fruition. Look at verse 24. And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Really, these next two verses are straightforward and the tendency would be to to read over them too quickly. But they still need some clear explanation because I would say uh, because of the confusion that's introduced by aberrant doctrine. We know that Joseph was a righteous man, so it should be no surprise that Joseph did not hesitate to believe the angel and immediately obey him. Joseph and Mary completed what was left of their betrothal period, and he took, took her as his wife. In other words, they began to live together as husband and wife. 
said yet another way, Joseph publicly accepted Mary as his wife. Joseph did not shrink back from doing what was right in the sight of Yahweh. You see, in that sense, he exemplified Psalm 15.4. He knew the consequences of taking Mary as his wife, yet he swore to his own hurt, and he did not change. Once he knew and understood what happened, he quickly made the righteous decision and he never wavered. Quickly made that decision and he never wavered. Look back at your text in verse 25. Matthew says, But kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Now, as if he hasn't already made it crystal clear, Matthew tells us again, Joseph did not have sexual relations with Mary until... I sound like Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) But this is not (laughs) Clinton-esque. Joseph did not have sexual relations with with Mary until she gave birth to Jesus. That's the truth. Nothing but the truth, and I'm not Bill Clinton. At this point, though, I should point out that Matthew knows nothing, nothing of Catholic dogma about the perpetual virginity of, of Mary. He uses a, a Greek construction in the, in the, that is translated in the Legacy Standard as until. In every case where Matthew uses this construction, and I looked at every one of them, he is saying, Something carries on in the same way until a specific point where those circumstances change. For example, in Matthew 17, 9, this is just one example, Jesus commanded His disciples to tell no one they witnessed His glory until He had risen from the dead. So it's something that is to carry on the same until something else happens. It's conditional. Here in Matthew one twenty five, Matthew is clearly communicating that Mary did not know a man until Jesus was born. But after his birth, Mary and Joseph enjoyed a fully consummated marriage that included several more children. The Bible mentions Jesus' siblings on several occasions, including Mark 6.3, where it says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and and Judah, Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us as well. John 2.12, John says, and he went this, after this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and disciples, his disciples, and they stayed there uh, for a few days. But it, it, again, it mentions his mother and his, his brothers and, his, and also the disciples. But the point is, is that, that he had, Mary had other children. Look back at your text in Matthew one twenty five. <laughs> he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now this phrase is critical. Again, Matthew is very clear and precise. It's critical for us to recognize that Matthew gives this entire account from Joseph's perspective. Here he says that Joseph called his name Jesus. 
naming Jesus then, naming him, meant that Joseph had adopted Jesus legally. If he had left that phrase out, it could be that Joseph never did so. He never uh, adopted Jesus legally. But that's, it's important to, to make clear, Matthew wants his readers to know that Joseph took Jesus as his child, and he reared him, he raised him in his household, and as his eldest son, Jesus was the legal heir to the throne of David. Very precise. Very precise. Well, church, we've made it through the first chapter of Matthew. In it, Matthew has laid out an argument that truly cannot be refuted. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He was born as the legal heir to the throne of David. He was born of the virgin by the Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. And He came to save His people from their sins. Just for a moment. I want you to imagine how difficult all these things would have been for Joseph and Mary. Truly, it would have been a very it would have been very difficult to hide a full-term pregnancy. I mean, at some point, the, the neighbors had to know. Mary was pregnant with what seemed to be an illegitimate child. But brothers and sisters, there is nothing illegitimate about our Lord. Yet, Joseph and Mary, even though this was true, Joseph and Mary never wavered in their commitment to walk in righteousness. You know, God sometimes, many times, puts His people in difficult circumstances. We see that clearly with Joseph and Mary. You see, the Christian walk is not the easy path. In Matthew seven, thirteen, Jesus says, Enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Then He says this, for the gate is narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Friend, have you entered the narrow gates? The broad way of the world promises ease. It promises many comforts. Many, many, many are walking on that path, but let me warn you, that way leads to destruction. It leads to eternal damnation. Jesus says that the gate that leads to eternal life, to life eternal, is narrow and the way is constricted. And you see, the wide gate and the broad way may seem to be right. Even to us in the church. Right? We, we, tend to think of, we tend to think of God's blessing and as, as somehow making life easier. But that's not what God, that's not what Christ taught. Even in the church, we can be lulled into thinking that, that it's this health and wealth idea. That God intends to bring us health and wealth. That, that He's somehow some sort of uh, cosmic genie that I can go to and I can say, Lord, I want all this. That wide gate and broad way may seem to be right. 
But that way is full of self-righteousness and the prideful works of man. The narrow gate is by faith in Christ alone. But don't be fooled. Following Christ is difficult. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. God saves us by His grace alone. But again, don't be fooled. Salvation is not the easy path. Joseph and Mary obeyed the Lord. They were believers in the Lord, saved by grace through faith. They truly walked in righteousness, yet their path was not easy. I remember when I was a young Christian, I remember thinking, looking at my life and thinking, it's too easy. I don't think my wife would say that, though. I don't, think, I don't think life's ever been easy for her. She's married to me. That's her. That's the cross she has to bear. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, not really. Um, but I remember thinking it's too easy. But it, I promise you, he's corrected that thinking. Friend, I ask you, whether you are a believer or whether you're here seeking, whatever your position is, I ask you, will you take up your cross and follow Christ? I ask you, will you enter the narrow gate? And walk the narrow path. The path that leads to eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You this morning. We're thankful for Your goodness to us and Your mercy toward us. Thankful for this story of this account. This story of the account of Joseph and Mary. Father, we thank you, thankful for Joseph's righteousness, for Mary's righteousness. But more than that, we see your sovereign hand on their lives as you brought this incredible, incredible birth to pass. Jesus, born of a virgin, by the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would believe that. In Christ's name, Amen.